So uh, let's take our Bibles and turn in them to the book of James. Uh, and so I gave you the little, the little uh, foreshadowing there. I, want, I didn't want you to come thinking, you know, Palm Sunday, and then, but I didn't talk about Palm Sunday, so I wanted to give you a little taste there. Now you know what's going on historically, biblically, prophetically as the week leads into, uh, you know, Resurrection Sunday this time next week. Amen. So James chapter 5, we're looking at closing it out today in a message that I've entitled Pray, Pray, Pray. And so let's pray. Uh, Father, we just thank you again for joining us together, and we give you all the honor and all the glory and all the praise, Lord. You and you alone are worthy. And so, Father, we pray that you would take this time and speak to our hearts and that the seed of your word would find fertile soil and bring forth fruit for your glory. Lord, change us. Father, make us like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You know, throughout this letter, uh, James has placed no small emphasis upon the way that we use our tongues. And so it serves really as no surprise that now as he begins to wind down and wrap up, he exhorts us unto its highest use, prayer, praise and persuading others unto godliness but primarily the the main emphasis of this passage by far is placed upon prayer it's mentioned seven times in these you know in this uh, in a few verses at verses 13 through 18 and he exhorts us to pray over our suffering to seek prayer in times of sickness we're to pray and intercede for one another and we're to pray fervently, meaning not hyper-emotionally, but not mechanically, not uh, absent-mindedly, but sincerely and passionately and from the heart. Essentially, the common thread woven throughout this section of Scripture is that regardless of the goings-on of the Christian's life, he or she should find themselves gravitating toward God in the midst and as a result of it. As the song goes, oh, what peace we often forfeit, right? Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Well, if you remember right, in the previous passage, uh, James was encouraging the believers to trust in the Lord in the midst of hardship, to realize, to recognize that though we're in the world, we're not of the world, and consequently things aren't always going to go our way so long as we live here. There will be times where you will suffer wrongfully. You may be oppressed. You may be treated harshly. You may be taken advantage of because you love the Lord, you see. But we're to wait patiently and prayerfully, expectantly upon the Lord, whom when He returns will settle every account, he will right every wrong and balance the scale of every injustice. And so let's take our attention and turn it to the 13th verse of the 5th chapter of the book of James. And we read, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, 
he will be forgiven. So I trust you see what I mean here, that whether I'm suffering, whether I'm satisfied, whether I'm sick, as a believer, I'm to turn my attention toward God, be it in prayer or be it in praise. Now, guys, we want to make a distinction here between he uses a couple of words. He talks about suffering. He talks about sickness. Uh, Now, when he speaks of suffering, it kind of connects us again to the previous passage, if you were with us, the idea is one of being afflicted, um, of suffering evil. You know, you're being subjected to a situation which sets circumstances against you. You remember back in verse 9, the exhortation was that we not grumble against one another, that we not gripe at one another, which is kind of the knee-jerk response when we feel like we're getting the raw end of the stick. Things are going bad, and we, we get kind of hypersensitive to the situation, and we start grumbling and griping. And, uh, but James is saying, look, don't be one who's always complaining, but instead turn to the Lord. Be one who's always praying. If you're a believer and you're being treated unfairly if someone or even something is afflicting me I'm to pray Peter put it this way he said therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time casting all your care upon him for he cares for you the idea there is that if I truly believe that God cares for me, then I can give to, or as Peter says, cast upon him uh, all that concerns me, knowing that ultimately he's going to take care of me. Now, does that mean, or does that somehow imply that God will always deliver me from my present suffering? No, no. Now, God can deliver me, Sometimes God will deliver me or remove whatever is afflicting me. But guys, there are times that rather than deliver me or remove whatever is afflicting me, uh, he will choose to supply the grace necessary enabling me to endure. You know, God may be growing my faith. God may be teaching me deeper humility Sometimes I discover, if you're anything like me, we can get a little bit too attached, too connected to the things of this world. And God will use sometimes suffering or affliction to kind of help us disconnect. We, we get disillusioned and, and kind of, uh, you know, taken back to where we need to be, which is, you know, putting our focus eternally where it ought to uh, be, thinking of Christ and what's to come. But there's any number of things that God can be doing and teaching us through affliction. Perhaps you recall when Paul sought the Lord to remove his affliction. And uh, Paul sought him, and he sought him again, and he sought him again. And uh, the Lord said to him, look, Paul, he said, my grace is sufficient for you. And he gave him this insight, this understanding. He said, My strength is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul said, therefore, 
or because of that, because of this revelation, this illumination that God has given to me, I will most gladly rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And he said, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So that Paul actually came to a place uh, whereby he could readily receive affliction if it meant that Christ would be magnified and glorified all the more in his life. So whether the Lord chooses to remove it from you or he chooses to supply the grace sufficient for you, Either way, we're to take it before the Lord in prayer. Now, maybe that's not you. You know, maybe you're not suffering. Maybe you're not being afflicted. In fact, you're quite satisfied at the moment. You know, things are going great for you. Well, what should you do? Do you see it there in verse, well, it's still in verse 13. He says, let him sing psalms. Translation, hey, give God Praise. Uh, suffering should elicit prayer. A sufficiency should elicit praise. Either way, we turn our attention to the Lord. Do you see that? Now, of course, the situation could be reversed. Ladies and gentlemen, the suffering can give God praise, and the satisfied can and should seek the Lord in prayer. You know, maybe you remember, there they were, Paul and Silas, Acts 16, arrested, beaten, put in prison in Philippi. It was about midnight. There they were. They couldn't sleep. They were writhing in pain. What was it that they decided to do? They opted to give God praise and sing psalms. And as they began to worship God in the midst of affliction, God did an incredible thing, didn't he? And so let's not see the way that James laid this out as a hard, fast, only option. Guys, you can pray and give God praise wherever life finds you. Uh, his point here is that there's never a time that justifies us not setting our sights on or seeking after the Lord. Now, guys, I also want to point this out. I found this sort of, it's kind of like a... Uh, in passing kind of observation, but I want to point it out to you because I found it fascinating. The word translated sing psalms here uh, in verse 13, and it's used three other times in the New Testament, but what the word literally means is to strike a chord or twang on the strings of a musical instrument. He's saying, look, is anyone cheerful? Hey, strike up the band, man. You know, uh, and I love this because you, you may have run across them or you may know of them. There is a, a group of people out there who believe that musical instruments are of the devil. You know, and that if you sing in church, it should always and only be a cappella. Uh, no instrumentation. They say, well, you know, we don't see it in the New Testament. Guys, even though the Psalms are literally littered, laced, with exhortations to the chief musician on the stringed instrument, you know. 
there throughout the Psalms, uh, he exhorts us to praise the Lord with flutes, with trumpets, with stringed instruments, and check this out, and loud clashing cymbals. Yeah, well, people always interested in kind of turning it down. Hey, what can I say? God likes it loud. You know? How many times you go to a concert, you have people go, well, I think it's just, just turning down. Man, no, you're passionate. You want it. You're into it. You know what I'm saying? You go to a sporting event, it's like, could you keep the cheer down, please? You don't do that. You expect it. There's an enthusiasm. There's a passion, you see. So, too, as the body of Christ, we should worship God wholly and loudly with all that we are, you see. But the point is that uh, the word James used here, and Paul uses it in Romans chapter, or, uh, in Romans uh, and in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, but it means to sing accompanied by music. Give God praise in the assembly. And the exhortation is good because the tendency that we have as people when things are going good is it's, it's easy to kind of drift, you know. It's easy to kind of forget about God and, and, and start walking in the confidence of the flesh. We just kind of go about life. We get in this rhythm and this kind of mechanical motion. And that's why Moses warned the people of Israel, if you recall, just before they entered the promised land, not to forget about God. They were going to come into a season of blessing, of satisfaction, of sufficiency, and he warned them, don't forget. Guys, it's why David said, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not. Notice all his benefits. If anything good has come into our life, it comes down from the Father. Isn't that what James told us? Every good and perfect blessing comes down from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no darkness, no shadow of turning. So why then do we take the goodness, the blessing of God, and then just kind of drift away from God? It's counterintuitive, but we do it. It should draw us to God. It should cause our hearts to well up in praise before God. But it's not uncommon to see people in the sanctuary who are, man, and they're, you know, they're just really going through something. But they're just praising God, you know, with all that they are. They're offering up that sacrifice of praise. And simultaneously, someone who has it relatively good to just kind of be standing there just waiting. I mean, it would seem, perhaps not, but it would seem just waiting for the time of worship and song to, you know, just kind of be done. But where's the gratitude, you see? Where's the, the praise, that humble heart of thanksgiving? Isn't that what the psalmist said? I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts with praise. Think about that. Whether suffering or satisfied, we should have a Godward focus. He's to be the focus of our heart, be it in prayer or in praise. And then in verse 14, he says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, in this section of Scripture, guys, there's a lot to unpack. 
And I'm just going to tell you that we won't be able to exhaustively examine every detail. But I trust that you'll get the gist, the gist of the passage as we go through. But a few, th- few things here. Uh, number one, what I want you to see here in verse 14 where he says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders. Look, let's note that the initiative is to be taken by the one who's sick. And by the way, um, this isn't speaking necessarily of a head cold, okay? Though we're honored, privileged, we pray for you no matter what, okay? But the idea here is one of being immobilized. You're weak. You're bedfast. Maybe you're in the hospital. Uh, You're missing work. I mean, you're down. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, You're sick, But you'd be surprised how many times we catch wind of someone being upset because they were down and no one came to pray for them. But what they don't tell you is that we never even knew that they were sick. No one reached out. No one let us know. Guys, we don't have ESP. I don't know what's going on in your life, you know, outside if you're not in, in here. I, I don't just presume that, well, they may, I'm going to take it one step further. Don't presume that because so-and-so knows who goes to the church, then, then that I must know. Well, you know, I saw so-and-so. Well, l- hey, listen, if you haven't made it known, okay, you haven't called the church, you haven't called for the elders, then don't be upset when, when no one shows up. It's not that we wouldn't. It's not that we don't want to. It's that we just don't know what's going on, you see. And, and guys, note, it's not just the pastor. Is it required that the pastor be the one? Well, it's cool if he can be. It's nice, whatever. doesn't have to be. Look, it's the elders. And, and it should be not just the single person that comes, though, again, wonderful. But notice he puts the plural in play. He says, call for the elders. Now, guys, Here's another deductive observation for you, okay? This passage assumes that you are in, as the body of Christ, that you are in and you are attached to a corporate assembly of believers that functions with structure and order. In other words, James is just assuming in the passage that you go to church, Okay, just like the, in the book of Hebrews, you know, chapter 10, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, and all the more so as you see the day approaching. We're to be together. But James just assumes here that you're there. Look, you can't call for the elders. You don't have a church home. Do you see what I'm saying? And the elders, he says, are to anoint the sick with oil in the name of the Lord and pray over them. Now, uh, what's this... Um, anointing with oil business all about. Well, there's actually a couple of possibilities here, family. Um, And honestly, I I believe it probably includes both. It certainly plausibly can. First, we realize that the anointing of oil throughout your Old Testament, if you're familiar, you know, they would anoint prophets, priests, and kings, someone going into it, and it was always uh, emblematic. And of course, you know, now today we, you know, either have like a little vial of oil or perhaps some, you know, you know, I don't, I typically don't use Wesson, 
<laughs> or Crisco. I don't know. <laughs> you know, the olive oil seems apropos. Uh, but, you know, they would take a, like a big ram's horn of oil and just, just, you'd just, you'd just be anointed, I'm telling you. Uh, but uh, it, it would be, and so you don't really probably want, I mean, we'll do that if you want. It'll just glug, 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 you know, or it'll go. But uh, uh, <laughs> you're kind of like that whole reminiscent of when Peter, when Jesus was like, I need to wash your feet. And he's like, you're not washing my feet. He's like, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have no part. He says, then wash everything, you know. Jesus said, no, we don't need that. Okay. Um, and probably so too with the oil. You don't need the whole bottle. Okay. But the, the picture that's in play is, is that of uh, the Holy Spirit uh, coming upon the individual. And so there's a real sense where the anointing of the sick with oil, guys, though there's nothing mystical, there's nothing magical about the oil, okay? Uh, but it's just an emblematic kind of action that simply says, God, we look to you. Uh, we trust in you. We welcome you. We're submitting to and asking of you that you would pour out your spirit, that you would touch and heal your son, your daughter, through the power and the presence and the person, you see, of your Holy Spirit. God, have your way here. We invite you to move and to minister. However, there is is and was another use for oil both in scripture and known throughout the ancient world and that is its use medicinally okay and honestly uh, if you do your little greek word search here in this passage that's the word that james uses here uh, you see it in mark chapter 6 you see it in Luke chapter 7. Uh, you'll see it take place in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember when he bound him up and anointed him with oil and he took him and everything. And that's in Luke chapter 10. And so the other thought here is, look, have the elders pray and don't neglect the best medical care that's available to you. Okay? Now again, I think there's room for both. You're praying for God to heal. You're asking for miraculous attention. But you're also not going to neglect medical attention. Okay? Guys, ultimately, be it medically, be it miraculously, how many of you realize all healing comes from God? Okay? Who gave man the wisdom to put together these elements that will work toward healing the body, these medicinal helps to discover them and, and all. So call for the elders to pray. Seek the Lord in His mercy. Take your medicine, and God's will be done. Okay? Now, in verse 15, he says, um, And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And notice, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, one reason, guys, and if this, isn't a, this isn't, again, a hard, fast thing, but one reason that it's good to have multiple people present praying uh, for you is because should the Lord choose to miraculously heal you, 
Uh, well, then the man's not magnified, but God is glorified, right? I mean, here's three or four guys praying. The Lord moves. Well, who did God move through? Who cares? Praise the Lord, right? So the attention's not given to the man. The glory is, is given to God. Now, guys, I want to be transparent with you here and just let you know, again, couple schools of thought with this verse, one of which lends itself to only a physical experience, you know, uh, if someone's sick, um, someone prays over them in faith, God heals, the sick is raised up, simple as that. And certainly the context can include that. But we would have to, guys, we have to be honest in our evaluation and even our, our study of Scripture. And, and God clearly does not grant physical healing with every prayer. We know that. You know, when you think of Paul praying over his thorn in the flesh, which we just talked about, God clearly told him, Paul, I'm not going to remove it from you. Okay? Paul told Timothy, look, you've got a, a weird stomach, man. Take a little wine for your stomachs. In other words, Timothy, take your medicine, man. Um, we, we discover that uh, um, in 2 Timothy where Paul says, Trophimus, I've left in Miletus sick. Do you think Paul wasn't praying in faith over these men? Again, zero doubt that Paul would be praying for Timothy, that he would be praying for Trophimus. But guys, if you chase that trail far enough that every time you pray for someone, if you just pray in faith, they're going to be healed, they're going to be ready, then I guess if God heals every physical sickness, then the only way that we die is through some tragic accident or something, because there can never be any sickness, any disease that settles in, into our bodies. You see what I'm saying? So... Yet we live in this fallen world. The wages of sin is, is death. And so though we should pray, I believe, with humble confidence that God would heal. In other words, there's no reason to make excuses for God. We're going to pray. We're not going to have not because we ask not. If God wants to heal, he can heal. But once we pray, we leave it in his hands. We trust in his sovereignty. Okay? But I want you to notice that the words... James uses here because this is where that other dynamic, that other kind of broader look, he speaks of the forgiveness of sin here. Uh, he speaks of being raised up. And so it would seem to me that James is allowing for a broader spiritual application and healing even as he is within the context allowing for the physical. He's even looking forward to the resurrection, that he'll be raised up, you see. Sins will be forgiven. They'll be raised up. Now, guys, I should also point this out. There is a connection here between this person in our passage, between this person's sin and their sickness, okay? Um, the words has committed. If he has committed, uh, really the word if might be better translated since because that words has committed are in the present perfect tense. And what that means is it's a continual action that they complete. Uh, in other words, they're habitually about some act of sin and the results are presently still occurring. That's a present 
perfect tense. In other words, this person's condition is a result of some act that they continued in again and again, okay? Uh, could be sexual disease, uh, could be the result of some drug or alcohol addiction, you know, something, uh, you get the idea. But that's why James says, if you pray over that in faith, that situation, that, that uh, sickness, assuming from the following verse, again, we, we kind of take these little verses and we isolate them and talk about them, but if you read it in the flow, you follow the flow, okay? Uh, it's assuming that he or she, the person in the passage, is repentant, he says, God will heal them and their sins will be forgiven. In other words, the person in this passage is being chastised, being disciplined, it would seem, by God for unrepentant sin in their life. Okay? So sometimes sin will bring sickness. At the same time, we need not assume that anytime someone is sick, or anytime someone meets an untimely end, that it's because of some sin in their life. Okay? By the same passage, you remember um, when uh, they ran across a person who was born blind, you know, the disciples asked Jesus, well, why did this happen? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? I mean, what happened here? To and Jesus said, neither. No, it's not, it had nothing to do with sin, you see. Not every ailment, not every affliction is like, wow, that person must really be doing something that God disapproves of, you see, or something like that. Not everyone is sick because of sin, and not every sickness is embedded with unrepentant or unconfessed sin. But sometimes our sin can bring these consequences. Our sin can bring consequences of sickness upon us. And he says here in verse 16, he says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Guys, again, a lot that could be said here. But one thing that I want you to take home is the fact that James is telling us that unresolved, unconfessed, unrepentant sin can hinder the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We read in Isaiah chapter 59... Behold, the, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. So James is telling us here, look, confession of sin is healthy for you. On every level, okay? Physically, emotionally, spiritually. And, and I've shared with this, this with you guys before that the word confess goes well beyond simply saying something I did. It means to acknowledge openly and to agree. Uh, the idea is that I acknowledge my sin in agreement with God 
uh, with the way that God sees it. I agree with God about it. I'm turning from it. I'm seeking accountability in regard to it. Are you with me? Now, if your Bible here says, uh, confess your faults, that's really not the best translation. Okay? It's definitely a reference to sin, your sins. And when we confess our sins, we're opening the door for God to move to bring times of refreshing, times of renewing, and in some cases, even healing, you see. Now, guys, this is where we want to be careful with what it means, confess your trespasses or your sins one to another. Believe me when I tell you that you want to show discretion and exercise wisdom uh, with whom you confess your sin to, okay? Uh, Should you confess your sin to someone who, say, struggles with the sin of gossip, (laughs) well... Um, and again, a lot we could say here, but here's, here's the general rule that I want to pass on to you, okay? And it's not, again, not a hard, fast rule, but just a general rule of thumb that it seems best to keep your confession limited to the circle of your sin's impact. Are you following me? Uh, what does that mean? Well, listen, again, you're an adult. You're free to share your sin with whomever you choose. I mean, trusting that you're prayerfully pursuing wisdom and healing and deliverance and accountability and all of these things, you know. Uh, You're not just telling someone what you did Friday night because you think it's cool. But we're talking about confessing sin, finding someone to confide in. You're seeking uh, that prayerful support to to find victory and, and deliverance and all. But if you've sinned in such a way that's impacted your family... Guys, confess it to your family. Ask for prayer. Ask for forgiveness from them. Listen, humbling yourself before your spouse, humbling yourself before your children, seeking their forgiveness, acknowledging your sin and your desire to repent, I'm telling you, it's powerful. You will find healing happening in your family when you begin to humble yourselves before one another and Take ownership of your sin and seek forgiveness and restoration. If you've sinned in a way that's impacted the whole church, man, you've been on the gossip chain or whatever the case may be, listen, let's get it out there. Let's let, the, the idea is let people know that you've repented so they can hold you up in prayer. Restoration and reconciliation is a beautiful thing. If you've sinned against an individual, go to that individual. Guys, The thing about sin, and I trust maybe you've never stopped to think about it maybe this way, maybe you have, but the thing about sin is that it tries to keep you all to itself. You know what I'm saying? In other words, sin tries to isolate you, Uh, but confession can break those bonds and restore the desperately needed 
fellowship. You know, when you, you know, you feel like there's an elephant in the room, you're not talking about it, you know you violated or you've hurt someone through some sin in your life, but you're kind of trying to pretend it's not there, and it's, it's just it's not working, it's not healthy. Do you understand what I'm saying? It promotes healing, both personally and in those whom it's impacted either directly or peripherally. Now, what you don't need to do is confess your sin to a priest or any other human mediator. There's only one mediator between God and man. That's the man Christ Jesus. Uh, But we're to confess to one another. But let me say this. And guys, these may things be things that go without need to say, but I just feel like I should say, because I know human nature, because I'm human. Um, if you struggle, and now this is just by way of example, okay? You struggle with alcohol. Uh, you struggle with some drug addiction. Maybe it's a prescription, you know? But you know the doctor gave it to you initially because of the need that was there, but eventually it kind of got its hooks in you, and you're kind of trying to, but it's impacting you and your family. You know, it's just, it's not right. Well, don't go confess to someone else who has the same struggle, okay? In other words, if, if you struggle with alcohol and you try to find uh, solace in someone else who struggles with alcohol, uh, it's not wise, it can lead to further sin. You can find yourselves struggling together. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, but if I've sinned against you, or you've sinned against me, were to come together, I confess to you what I have done. You confess to me your part. We pray for one another. We come together. We pray together that we might be healed. In other words, that we might be made whole, that the restoration, the reconciliation before God and to one another can take place. And let me say this too, guys, and then we'll move forward here in, in just a second. But if, if we feel so led, again, maybe it's something that you feel has, has, man, I've done this, and it's had ripple effects throughout the church. You know what I mean? And so you feel like you need to, to, to confess this. And you come to me and you say, hey, this is what, you know, and I really want to make this right. If you feel so led to confess publicly, again, no need to confess the details. Okay, this is important. Simply something to the effect of, guys, I have sinned, family, or I am beset, I have been overwhelmed, overcome. My heart is to turn from my sin. Please hold me up in prayer. That's enough. Okay? Or maybe something like this. Guys, I have had bitterness in my heart towards someone in leadership here. It's been impacting all kinds of things. You may not have even recognized it or realized it or known where it was stemming from, or, but I'm just telling you, uh, it's impacting the church. I'm asking you to forgive me, to please pray for me. I'm going to make it right with them. Or I've already made it right with them, and now I want to make it right with you. You see what I'm saying? You don't have to go into all the nasty details of what you said or how you did and all of those kinds of things. Do me a favor. Write it down, read it later, Psalm 51. Okay, many of you may be familiar with this, Psalm 51. You, what you find there is David's confession, okay? You remember David, he committed, we know, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He murdered Uriah, 
her husband. He lied and deceived. Uh, he lied to, deceived his kingdom and all. But in his confession, he doesn't bring up all those details. He acknowledges his sin, uh, his desire to be cleansed, to be renewed, to be restored. Created me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me before you and you only. Against you, God, I have sinned and all these kinds of things. He's confessing. He's coming clean. As we read in the Proverbs, he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. So we have one of two choices, don't we? We can try to cover them or we can confess them. Okay? One of which leads to nothing fruitful and the other which invokes the mercy of God. Think, of that, think about that. And concerning our text, if someone asks us to pray for them in their sickness, guys, it's appropriate, though, once again, I would not say mandatory, to simply and lovingly ask them, is there anything that you need to get right between you and God before I pray for you in this? You know, and it's not to infer that there's unconfessed sin that's plaguing them with sickness. That's, but look, at least let's eliminate that possibility, Okay. Pray for one another that you might be healed. And here's something that's interesting. He says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. What kind of prayer is effective? One that's based in fervency and righteousness. I notice one thing that he doesn't say is uh, that it has anything to do with how long somebody prays. Some people want to make you feel like you really aren't touching the heart of God till you've been on your face for at least 30, 40 minutes, maybe an hour, you know, and it comes across like, man, they, golly, man, I mean, I, sometimes I run out of words in about two minutes or whatever, you know, and this person's like on and on and on, and it's like, but that's not, that's not what's necessarily availing much. That's not what makes a prayer effective. The strength of prayer, guys, here's the little catchphrase I like to use. The strength of your prayer is not found in the length of your prayer. I would, I would encourage you, I would exhort you, I would challenge you, to study the different prayers you find written down in the Bible and, and, and then read them and look and see how much time it takes to get through them. Even the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17 doesn't take too long. Okay? So the strength of prayer isn't in the length of prayer, but he says if it's based in fervency and righteousness. Guys, many times our prayers aren't effective. I'm just being honest because they aren't fervent. Meaning... So often my prayers are ineffective, and I'll just use myself as the example. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself. But so many times my prayers aren't effective because, I mean, they're just kind of lukewarm or perhaps even cold before God, you know? And, of course, I'd never say it out loud because I'm much too spiritual. But <laughs> it's as if, you know, I'm nonchalantly throwing this request up to God not because I really care about it, but I want God to. Well, listen, that kind of praying probably doesn't go much higher than the ceiling. You know? Now, fervency isn't uh, me emotionally trying to persuade a reluctant God and, oh, God, and would you? And some people, the longer they pray, the louder they get. And I mean, okay, fine. You know, if that's kind of your thing, then fine. Um, 
that's not what he's talking about here. It's, it's just me falling in line with God's heart. In other words, the things that are important to God are important to me. You see what I'm saying? And I'm in line, I'm in tune with him. Now, as for uh, being righteous, guys, can we just thank God that we don't come to him on the basis of our own righteousness? Come on, somebody. But that which Jesus Christ has provided for us upon the cross, we come to God now. Now, of course, that righteousness will be demonstrated in the general pattern of our lives, right? What we believe determines how we behave. We talk about this. But our righteousness is not our own. It's provided by Jesus Christ who has loved us and given himself for us. And so when we come before God and we're interceding on behalf of one another, Lord, I'm not coming to you on the basis of anything uh, I do or don't do, but on the basis, Lord, of what you have done and the righteousness you have provided through the shedding of your blood to cleanse me of my sin, right? Now, verse 17, guys, we're not far from finished here. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. So guys, have you noticed throughout our passage or throughout this entire study in the book of James? I mean, he's nothing if he's not consistent, right? Exhortation, illustration. It's always following. He says, listen, when you think of Elijah, he's talking about this principle of fervent, effective prayer, right? So he brings up Someone who would come into our minds as someone who readily and truly had a powerful prayer life. And he says, man, you think of Elijah, you think super saint, powerful prophet on another level, spiritually speaking. I mean, this is who he was. But he says, no, no, he wasn't. He was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, Elijah, ladies and gentlemen, was absolutely human. Nothing special about him in that regard. He was tempted like you are. He had a sin nature like you have. He was subject to the same emotional swings that we experience. One day you're feeling really close to God. The next day you're wondering where he is. I mean, you remember there he was and he, he slayed all the prophets of Baal. And then, you know, so he was bold. He was mocking them. He was like, oh, maybe your God's on the toilet. You know, maybe he's on, that's what he said. He said, maybe he's on vacation somewhere. Uh, and maybe you should cry a little louder. Maybe you should cut yourself a little more. And they're whipping themselves into this frenzy. They were in a frenzy, weren't they? They were getting louder and louder and doing all the things, trying to get their God's attention. And he's just kicking back, eating bonbons, waiting on them to be done, you know? And then, and then when they are all finished, after they've prayed all day, he says, well, I tell you what, before I go, I want you to um, dig a trench around my sacrifice and just heave as much water on it and fill it up as much as you can. So they do. And now again, uh, <laughs> go back and read the passage. He doesn't pray this long, super spiritual prayer. He just says, God, that these people might know, right, that you are the true God, the God of Israel, that I am your servant. 
Just do what you do, essentially. And you remember fire fell. And then all the prophets of Baal, he said, take them down and slay everyone. He he actually, I think he, he killed them all. But then Jezebel catches wind and she's like, I'm gonna have this guy's head. And what does he do? He just stood fast before 400 prophets and he runs away in fear and he hides in a cave and he gets all depressed. And he's like, God, I'm the only one. No one else serves you like I serve. And he goes through this, this whole hyper mood swing, just like you do, just like I do. Here's the thing. I digress. Here's what James is saying. If he had a nature like ours, then we can have a prayer life like his. Do you understand what I'm saying? He was righteous by faith. He prayed earnestly, and we see the efficacy of those two things. To pray earnestly, literally, it means he prayed with prayer. That's what he literally says. He prayed with prayer. Maybe that's what we're talking about. Maybe that'd be a little bit better uh, way for you to think through this idea of fervent, effectual prayer. In other words, he was dialed in. He was sincere. He wasn't praying mechanically. It wasn't just whatever the case may be. It wasn't half-heartedly. He was praying with prayer. Do you understand me? Okay. And then finally, and uh, we're going to close here. If you want to Come on down. Verse 19, he says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. You know, speaking of people who stray, who drift, who fall into the miry clay of sin and backslide, He says, look, if any of you step up and step out and turn them around, you reason with them, uh, you persuade them, right, to see their sin for what it is, and it invokes repentance in their lives. In other words, you're letting God use your life. Do you see what I'm saying? This person is straying. You're seeing it. It's happening in front of you, and you, it's like... It's like, uh, you know, you want to step in front of them before they get on the railroad tracks or something. You're stepping in front of them. You're saying, hey, 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 let's reason this thing through. You know, God loves you. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? I mean, think about how your life was going before you knew Jesus Christ. You want to go back to that? Is that what you're saying right now? And you're, you're, you're letting the Lord, the, God's giving you scripture, you're encouraging them, you're loving on them on behalf of the Lord. And they turn from their sin. He says, man, you've saved a soul from death. You've covered a multitude of sins. Guys, confrontation, it's never easy. But once again, the restoration of the one who erred, who was straying, is a powerful testimony to the grace of God. It offers hope to others who are wallowing in the mire of condemnation. How many of you know that, you know, condemnation, this is what happens, right? We slip, we struggle, we stumble, we sin, and the enemy is right there with that heavy hand of, you hypocrite. You say you love God, you live your life like this, 
I don't even know if you're saved. You're not, definitely not a real Christian. You think a real Christian would do something like that? That's condemnation, man. We reject that. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But the conviction of the Holy Spirit says, hey, hey, what are you doing? Again, we, we refer back to that, come let us reason together, says the Lord. Yeah, your sin's like scarlet. I'm going to make you white like snow. You're like crimson. I'm going to make you white as wool. I want to cleanse you. I want to wash over you. I want to renew you. I want to restore you. What are you doing? Turn from your sin, you see. It's not redemption that's in view here in our passage. It's revival. It's, it's leaving the 99, right? Matthew 18 is leaving the 99 to seek after the one. Go get them, you see. Prayer, praise, persuasion. Guys, I pray that our study through the book of James has been a blessing for you. It has been for me. James would tell us, Let's not just grow old. Let's grow up. Time to grow, James says. Be the man, be the woman that God is calling you to be. Family, you know, I don't know how to say it any plainer than this. God has called you to a time such as this. In all the insanity and in all the instability and in all of the panic and all of the social anxieties and all of the things that's going on, the uncertainty, God has called you to a time such as this, to be the light, to be salt in a hurt and dying and dark world. And guys, it could, he could have called anybody. He could have called, he could have, he could have put you in 1746, you know, if he wanted to. But he chose to put you right here, right now to carry the torch, man. I think about it a lot of times with regard to like relay racing and how a coach will put their strongest runners. Now, everybody on the team is great, right? But they put that, those strongest runners in off the mark. They want to get that push. And then on the final relay to really bring it across the finish line strong. So they'll put their best runners in the beginning and the end and everybody in between is holding it down, Right? I'm just going to tell you, I think God puts you in at the end. You know, I think that uh, time is short. I don't know. I don't know if that means 10 years, 20 years, two months, next week. I, I don't know. But God called you to a time such as this. As this. The question is, what are you going to do about it? I think about the response of the Apostle Paul when the Lord called him. You remember what he said? Lord, what would you have me do? What do you want me to do, God? So, stand for him. Serve others. Speak the truth in love. Be sensitive to the unction of his spirit. And God will be glorified in your life. Amen. All right, let's bow our hearts. God, may we be in stride with your spirit and in tune with your heart. And I pray, Lord, that even as, as you've exhorted us today, that no matter what our situation may be, that our hearts would be turning to you.
in prayer, in praise. And, and Father, I pray that we would be a people who refuse to harbor sin, but that we would walk in holiness, that you might be glorified in our lives.